you have your Bibles, and I hope you always do, when you come to God's house, turn to Revelation chapter uh, 7, I almost said 1, chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1, as we continue to talk about revealing Jesus as our champion, or as the champion. If we choose to be his follower, he's our champion, but if you don't, he's still the champion, and so he's the winner, and that's what the book of Revelation is really all about. It's a real encouragement to anybody going through hard times, anybody going through suffering, persecution that Jesus does overcome. Uh, in the end, you are on the right team, on the winning team, if you're on Jesus' team, and it's all about him, and uh, we can choose to be for him, with him, or against him, but that's our choice, and so uh, tonight... Uh, as we look at Revelation chapter 7, um, let's dig in, and we'll just read the first verse. We'll go through uh, most of the verses tonight. We'll take the, pretty much the entirety of chapter 7 and uh, see what the Lord is saying uh, to us tonight, okay? So the Lord's saying to us tonight. Revelation 7, 1, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. So we're going to talk about survival. I love survival stories. I love stories about people who uh, overcome great odds, go through great difficulties, and come out the other side as uh, survivors. Uh, it's one reason why I don't like the survivor store show as much as I like something like Alone. Survivor, the show, I thought that's a personality contest and about outwitting people, which is fine. I mean, it's, it's good. It's all right. Uh, but I love the stories of people who truly can survive. I'm reading a book right now uh, some lady named Oksana Masters. Oksana was born in, uh, in the Ukraine. In fact, she was born in 1989 in the country of U Ukraine, and that has something to do with the effects of her birth because that's three years after uh, the disastrous or catastrophic events of the Chernobyl disaster. Uh, because of that, uh, she suffered some birth effects when Oksana was born. She was born with six toes on each foot, uh, she was born with five webbed fingers and no thumbs, and which meant she could not really, it's hard for her to grasp things because her fingers were webbed uh, together. Her left leg was six inches shorter than her right legs, and both legs were missing the weight-bearing bones from the knee down. So it made it extremely difficult uh, for her to walk. Uh, because of her birth defects, her parents put her up for adoption. She accidentally found some papers. Uh, where they said we're putting her up for adoption because of her birth defects. She was in three orphanages as a young child. She doesn't remember the first two, but she remembers the last one where she was terribly abused. Uh, she was hungry all the time. She said the kind of hunger that seeps deep into your bones, the kind of hunger that hurts down into your bones, and said, in fact, she never knew when her next meal was coming from. She was adopted by a wonderful American lady who was a great mom. She had, I'm reading her autobiography right now. She has nothing but good things to say about her mom, how wonderful her mom was. But uh, she said even today, uh, she's in her 30s now, her mom calls her to remind her to eat because she just learned to ignore the hunger pains, just learned to disassociate uh, hunger pains from her uh, body. Also, they, one of the punishments they would do with her would be to spray her down with cold water and then make her sleep in the wet clothes on nights when the water that dripped from the radiator and the heaters in her room froze. Um, she ended up being adopted uh, by an American lady who was a wonderful, wonderful mom. Um, but even here, she was picked on in school. She was, um, she liked to talk with her hands, but people made fun. They created thumbs for her, uh, but they didn't look like thumbs. 
they looked odd. They looked different. As I said, her hands were webbed. She did, had numerous, numerous surgeries on her fingers trying to, uh, trying to get them to where she could function well with them. That, and they did okay, but her fingers were terribly scarred. And so she always, even in the summertime, she would try to wear long sleeves to try to cover her hands up. Uh, one leg had to be amputated when she was nine years old. The other leg had to be amputated when she was 13 years old. Um, so she had terrible, terrible difficulties in her life. When she was 13, um, right before her, her second leg was amputated, her mom, they tried to find places for her to thrive, you know, places for her to enjoy things. She went out for cheer. Um, her mom said it was very clear that she knew the dance routine better than anybody else. Uh, she did not make the cheer team, and her mom went to ask the cheer sponsor why, and uh, she said, well, she just wasn't good enough. She said, that's not true. Uh, she knew the routine better than anybody else that tried out. There were people on the, that made it that she taught the routine to that didn't know as well as she did, and it come to the thing was she had prosthetic legs, and that was not appealing to a dance team. Same thing with volleyball. They let her be on the team, but they never let her play. And so her mom said one day, she said, look, there's, a, there's a, a rowing place, a place where you go out and row, like rowing boats for um, disabled people, and I want you to go try it out. And she's like, I don't want to be there. I don't like to be around. You know, I don't want to be labeled as disabled. But uh, she's 13, and she found there was a really cute guy in her class that was going to be there. <laughs> It's amazing how things that can attract you to something. I think I'll go after all. And so she went. And she said that the moment she put the oars in the water, she felt at home. See, there was something about having control. She had control over that boat. She could make it go as fast or slow as she wanted it to do. Found out she was really good at it. And, uh, and so she began to row. Even after she had both legs uh, amputated, they, they were able to put, put her in a place where she would row in the, in the competitions for trunk and arms people only with, with no legs. Uh, she got good enough to where some people went all in with her and tried to uh, support her, encourage her. And, then, um, and she actually won uh, in 2012 in the, in the London Olympics. She ended up winning a bronze medal in the team rowing Olympics. Uh, she went on to really accomplish a lot more. In Beijing, she became the first U.S. Uh, Paralympic to win seven different medals, three golds and four silvers, including uh, rowing, including cross-country skiing, sprint skiing, and the biathlon. That's where you ski and shoot a gun. And uh, she won medals in all of those things. And coming, uh, the most decorated U.S. Paralympian ever winning 17 medals at the Paralympics. It's amazing what somebody can survive and then actually thrive through. And that's the story of Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 helps us to see as Christians how sometimes the odds are stacked against us. And sometimes we go through really, really hard things, heart-rendering things, brutal kind of things. And yet, who's going to survive? In fact, that's kind, of the, that's kind of the deal here in Revelation chapter 7. The setting for Revelation chapter 7 is Revelation chapter 6, the last verse, the New Living Translation. As we look at all the tragedies in Revelation chapter 6, in verse 17, the very last verse, it says, for the great day of their, the Father and the Son, he who sits on the throne and the Lamb, the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to survive? And that's the question that sets up Romans chapter 7, I mean Revelation chapter 7, because in chapter 6, you have a false peace that we believe the Antichrist probably brings in, and then you have, for real, war, famine, 
pestilence, death, and then vengeance in form of an earthquake and the skies being rolled up and stars falling down. I mean, this is this cosmic, uh, unhe- uh, cosmic upheaval as sphere comes crashing in all the inhabitants of the earth. And so verse 17 says, who can survive all of this? And the, and the answer is that God in his grace is able to make his people stand. That God in his grace is able to help people uh, not only in the uh, great tribulation time and the end times, but also what I want us to see tonight is that this is not just for them. John's writing to people in his day, churches in his day, and they're going through really, really hard tribulation, awful tribulation. And so we're going to see tonight that the God who's enabling is going to enable people to stand in the worst times of human history is able to make you and I stand in our day in human history. Because while we may not go through some of the things we see in Revelation chapter 6, I don't know about you, but I go through enough. I know some of you are going through enough tonight, right? You're not wanting any more tribulation. You're not wanting any more trouble, any more heartache, any more disappointments. It seems like plenty. As we look around our world today, we can see people that are going through some really, really hard things. And the message from Revelation chapter 7 tonight is God is able to help you stand. God will enable you to survive whatever comes in your life. And we're going to see what that means as we walk through. So, How do we survive hard tribulation times? How do we survive the worst of times? Let me mention three things from Revelation chapter 7 that is going to help people in the end times in the great tribulation that that, that did help people in John's day and will help us in our day as well. Number one is God's protection. God's protection. We're going to see that God protects his people. Look at Revelation chapter 7 verse 1. After this... I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. Wind is often associated with judgment in the Bible. And that's what this is talking about, especially the context helps us to understand this. Revelation chapter 6 is the context of great judgment. And so we get to Revelation 7 and we see a picture. And don't take this too literally. We see a picture and the picture is judgment has coming. Judgment is here. And yet God is going to limit it. He's going to have an angel holding back that the judgment is not too severe on his people. Any Any tragedy that touches our life, uh, God knows about, God allows, God understands that it's coming. And while it may be heartbreaking and heart-wrenching, it will not be too much for God to enable us to endure. And so uh, he says there uh, that he's going to hold back the wind. We've seen the devastation of the wind where we live, haven't we? You've seen hurricanes and the devastation that happens. We've seen just in the last week the devastation of the tornadoes that have, that have come across our country, just absolute devastation there. Uh, some of us, if you remember, went to Ocean Springs after Hurricane Katrina, and we saw uh, so what was supposedly beautiful two-story homes, and all that was there was a concrete slab. We saw, uh, I remember talking to one guy who had a, a boat inside of his carport, and I asked him, I said, Master, it's horrible having your boat in your carport, and he said, I don't know whose boat that is. It wasn't his boat. Didn't know where the boat had come from. We saw clothes 10, 15, 20 feet up in trees. I mean, the wind, came, and so wind is often a picture of devastation, and that's what he's saying here. God is going to hold back. He's going to remember, and in fact, this was in my quiet time this, this week as I was studying this, that God remembers that we are but dust. 
Aren't you glad he knows the frailties and the weaknesses of our bodies and our flesh and our spirit? Now, some people have criticized the Bible here because it says it talks about the four corners of the earth and the earth is not square. Um, what I would say in response to that is a couple of things. One is a compass does have four corners on it, <laughs> north, south, east, and west. And the other thing is there are things called expressions <laughs> that are not necessarily meant to be scientific. Almost every meteorologist on TV today said something scientifically incorrect. They said the sunrise will be at such and such a time and the sunset will be at such and such a time and the sun does not rise or set. That's scientifically inaccurate. The earth revolves around the sun, okay? And so this is just an expression. By the way, if anybody ever points that out to you, you can go to Isaiah 40, 22, where it says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, <laughs> okay? So there's an idea that the earth is round, okay, because he sits above the circle of the earth, and that has a better idea of describing the earth than Revelation does. So the point is that God tempers his judgment. Now look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 2. So I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And so this other angel comes to say that he's going to hold back the judgment until God's servants are sealed. God's seal is God's protection and God's ownership. We've talked about seals before. Typically, a, a little thing of wax or clay that was put on a document or on an object. A king had a signet ring which had his image or his likeness on it or, or the image of the country on it. He would stamp that, and that meant what? It was his. It belonged to him, and he was protecting it. And the seal of God means that those who have given their life to Christ those who've been saved belong to God. God's protection is on their life. And how many of you know God knows how to protect them? We do our very, very best to protect our children. We do our very, very best to protect our friends. We can't always be there uh, to do the things we would like to do to protect our kids. But listen, God knows how to protect those who are his own. And, in, and what God says when it seals on them, and by the way, we'll see it in a minute. If you belong to Jesus... You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You belong to God. He owns you, and he knows how to protect you. Now, in this particular passage, he's talking about the 144,000. Now, think about that number, 144,000. That's 12 times 12 times 1,000. That is a, 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 that is a huge number. It's a very symbolic number of, I believe, the complete number of Jewish people that are going to turn to Christ in the end times. Uh, he talks, he's going to list the tribes of the nation of Israel here. And so it's hard, to, and it may be a literal 144,000 that's going to turn to Christ in the end times. Um, it may be, I, whether it's literal or not, it's, it's got to be symbolic because 12 times 12, okay? 12 double, 12 squared times 1,000. What is God saying? There's 12 tribes of Israel, going to double that, times it by 1,000. This is the full number of Israel. God has promises to Israel that have not come 
true yet. Yet, they're going to come true. He's going to bless the whole world through the nation of Israel. I believe this is one of those passages where that comes to fulfillment. God knows how to bring his promises to fulfillment. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. Now, you hear a lot about the 144,000. Jehovah's Witnesses talk about that. Charles Taze Russell was the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he taught that there would be, when there was 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, Christ would come back and set up his kingdom. Problem with that was they have more than that now, and, you know, <laughs> we're still here. And so they've adjusted that. They've adjusted their thinking to 144,000 spirit brothers or will go to Jesus in the millennial kingdom to be with him, and the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses will be here on the earth. But this is the whole point of Revelation 7. He's talking about the tribes of Israel, and he's going to list the tribes in a moment. I believe the most, and some people talk about maybe this is the church, the spiritual Israel. And there's some, I mean, there, John did write to one of the churches that people say they're Jews and they're not. And so that's where some people get that. I really believe the most likely interpretation is this is going to be that complete turning of Israel to Christ in the end times to satisfy God's promises to them. Uh, God's going to protect them. They belong to him. There are promises that have not been fulfilled yet that will be fulfilled. I believe God still has a plan for Israel, and I believe this is part of that plan. God's going to protect them. Now, they're not going to be protected from great troubles, but through great troubles, okay? It's going to be some horrific things happening on the earth during this time, and God knows how to protect them through those things. We'll see a little bit more about that in a minute. But what our message for us here tonight is this. God doesn't necessarily protect you from troubles, but through troubles. The biggest trouble, the biggest evil that can befall you is to fall away from Jesus. And that's what God's going to protect you from. In fact, I got to thinking about that this week because we all pray for our families, hopefully. We pray for our, our, our children. We pray for safety. We pray for protection. But if you got any awareness of yourself at all, you know there's no promise that something bad is not going to happen, you know. Um, small children pass away. Uh, people get cancer that love Jesus with all their heart. People die, uh, what seems like to us, unfortunate and untimely deaths. People get sick that we don't want them to get sick. They have to have surgery. We wish they wouldn't have to have surgery. Here's the thing. And so I got to thinking about that. What does God protect us from? He doesn't protect us from death. He doesn't protect us from crime a lot of times. He doesn't protect us from illness. He doesn't protect us from disappointments or broken hearts and all that kind of stuff. God protects us from evil. God protects us from fully and finally falling away from him. He protects us eternally, okay? We are eternally protected to be with him forever. God knows how to do that. In the flood, in the great flood, God protected Noah and his family, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, God protected Lot and his family. When God came through Egypt during the time of the Passover, he protected his people who had the blood on the doorpost. God protects his people. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Every Christian who's been saved, even those who grieve the Holy Spirit, still sealed, still belong to God he still owned, and he knows how to be that good, good father. I'll give me one other verse, and we'll go to the next point. 1 Corinthians 1.8, the New International Version says, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he protects you from, that you will one day 
If you're a Christian, you've genuinely been born again, you will one day, no matter what happens to you on this earth, no matter how hard this time is, you will one day stand blameless. Everybody say blameless. That's almost hard to say, isn't it? Blameless before God. Why? Because through the blood of Christ, he protects us from the wrath that's to come. So the first thing is, how do you get through God's, how do you get through great tribulation? How do you go through very difficult times? You trust and believe and count on God's protection. Second thing is, you count on and rely on God's purpose or God's mission. In other words, the more connected you are to God's purpose in your life, the more connected you are to God's mission in your life, the closer in sync you are with God, the less spiritual harm, not physical, spiritual harm comes into your life. You see God at work and you, and you experience God's protection. And that's what we see with 144,000 here. Look at, what we, look at what we find in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7. After these things looked, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, most people believe that the 144,000 Jewish people are going to be Jewish, I say most people, a lot of people, are going to be Jewish evangelists during the Great Tribulation, which brings us to the question a lot of people ask, can people be saved during the Tribulation? These verses tend to say yes. There are some parables that other people say, I, don't, I, I say no. Here's what I would say. I wouldn't count on somebody's interpretation. I'd get saved before that. <laughs> Today's the day of salvation because, you know, the idea of, well, even if I miss it, I can get saved during, during the Great Tribulation. Uh, you may die today. You may die next week. You may die without any warning, okay? And so while these verses seem to point to that idea that there will be people being saved during the tribulation with these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and you say, well, it never says they're going to be evangelists. That's never that clear. The reason we believe that, the reason a lot of people believe these 144,000 from the Jewish faith are going to be evangelists. They're going to preach the gospel. They're going to turn to Christ first, and then they're going to preach the gospel, and many, many people are going to be saved. Is right here in Revelation chapter 7. Look back there at verse 9. He says, then after these things, after what? After the 144,000 are sealed and protected by God. After these things, what? A great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, and people, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. How do they get saved? Well, it's right after the 144,000. So that's where most people get, or the people that get this, this is where they get this from, is that these evangelists are going to bring about a great revival, and that's where all these people from all the nations, tongues, and places are going to come from and see all these people. So what we do know, what we do know in the midst of all this, is that God has called the Jewish nation to be a blessing to the world. God's called the Jewish nation to carry his message. And we see that several Old Testament passages, how that, that, that through Israel, many nations are going to be blessed. Many nations are going to be brought to God through the nation of Israel. And I really believe that you can connect this to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, where God tells Abraham, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and your name will be great. And what? And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you and Abraham and Israel, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And to me, 
uh, it makes sense, and I think it's a valid interpretation to say that's what these 144,000 are going to be fulfilling uh, during the end times of great tribulation. Now, in verse 5, I skipped over verse, some of you will notice I skipped over verse 5, because what happens in verse 5 going on is he lists the 12 tribes of Israel. And so rather than just reading all that, just understand he lists those 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. Uh, it's a little bit confusing, a little bit interesting that Jacob had 12 sons. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, you would think it'd be real easy to list those 12 tribes, but it's not. Uh, the, he, the Old Testament lists them several times, and it's almost always it's lots of different orders, and sometimes different, even, even different people. And here's different. And it's interesting here because what you have here in this list, what happens, and this is the reason for the confusion. Um, when God chose the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, he gave them the land of Israel. But Levi didn't get a portion of the land because they're the priests. And so they, they, they live off the tithes and offerings and they don't get a portion in the land. And so what God did is well, he took Joseph's tribe and he used Joseph's two children as a substitute for Joseph. That way it balances back out. This way take Levi out, put Joseph's two children in. But he doesn't even follow that here. In verse 7, he includes Levi. Levi's included, but the tribe of Dan is left out. You're like, why is Dan left out? Well, we don't really know. The best guess we have is that in the Old Testament, uh, Dan was a very idolatrous tribe, addicted to idolatry. God had some very harsh words for the tribe of Dan. And so we feel like probably because of that, Levi takes Dan's place here. Now, the good news for Dan, Dan, there's good news for Dan. The good news for Dan is that in Ezekiel 48, there is a millennial listing of the 12 tribes and Dan's there. Aren't you glad God's grace can triumph over everything? Amen. Even Dan gets, gets called in there. And instead of having Ephraim and Manasseh, which usually, that's Joseph's two sons. That's usually who's in there in uh, Joseph's place. Uh, but you got, you got Levi in here. And instead of Ephraim and Manasseh, you have Joseph and Ephraim. And you're like, well, why, you, why, why is that? Well, uh, Joseph and Manasseh, why is that? Well, because Ephraim was addicted to idols. They were often uh, victims of idolatry. They were a defector from the house of David. They were an ally. They allied themselves with Judah's enemies in some of those wars. And so that's probably why they're left out. Um, how many of you know God can keep everybody he needs to keep? Amen. And uh, it's really good to worship him, walk with him. So back to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Look at, look at what it says here. After these things, I looked. Behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, watch this, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. Isn't it great to have palm branches again? <laughs> we have about Palm Sunday this, this morning. Um, the palm branches oftentimes are symbols of victory. Symbols of victory. White robes are also symbols of victory. And so what is he saying? These 144,000 plus others are coming through. Uh, as we understand this right. This great tribulation in the end times. They're going to make it through. Some will die in the middle of it. Some may live through the, all of it. But here's the thing. All those who are saved will make it through to the temple of God, to heaven, to the presence of Almighty God. We'll see that in just a moment in the next Point. Look, if you will, to the last point, and that's God's praise, okay? So we start off with God's protection. God is protecting his people no matter what happens in your life. You can count on the fact that he is protecting you. It might be really bad, but it could always be really a lot worse. And God is, you know, y'all have heard me say it before. 
I don't like the expression, God won't put on you more than you can stand. I like the idea that whatever you go through, God is enough if you let him carry it. It depends on whose shoulders it lands on. Sometimes things are too much for people. But, if the, you know, the Jesus said, if you're tired and weary and heavy laden, come to me. For my yoke is easy. Yoke is what? Yoke is that thing they put over two animals that are pulling together. And how many of you know Jesus is a lot bigger than us, so the yoke falls where? On his shoulders, not on ours. He, he, he will enable us to walk with him as he carries the heavy part of the load. As I said to you several uh, times uh, recently, when we were on vacation, I heard somebody say in a, in a church service that the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. Last of all is God's praise. When you have God's protection, you're on God's mission, you end up praising God. And anyone who wants to say thank you that you're saved, just say thank you, Lord. Look in verse 11. And all the angels stood around the throne. And the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne. And they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Interestingly enough, as the saved people, the redeemed people worship, the angels worship in response. We see that in Luke 15 where there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. But we get it here in Revelation as well. And interesting, notice what happens here. They say, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God. And in the, uh, in the Greek language, there's an article with each one of those. What that means is it literally says the blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving and the honor and the power and the might be to our God. So let's walk through that just for a quick second. The blessing, what does the word blessing mean? Blessing means to speak well of. To speak well of. And so when it says the blessing, it says what? He gets the blessing. Our best speech is for Jesus. Our, the, the, things we talk, the thing we talk about the best, the most, with the most admiration and the most glory and the most wonder is to our God. So to the, this week and Holy Week, can we think of a way to brag on Jesus to somebody? Can you think of a way to give him the blessing? This week, you talk good about a lot of things, but the blessing, the glory, idea of glory's value. God is worth more to us than anything or anybody else. And you'll do things for, for something or someone that means something to you that you won't do for other people. And I just give you two words to make that point, and they are T-ball. <laughs> if you go out to watch T-ball for fun, God bless you. But there's people that will sit out, and I've been one of them, sit out on the bleachers and the hot and uncomfortable and all that stuff, and you'll watch those little kids run around. They don't know what they're doing and all kind of funny stuff, and it's really it's kind of entertaining for about seven and a half minutes, and then it gets old if your kid's not playing right. And you do that, why? Because your child's out there or your grandchild's out there, and you watch that, why? Because they mean something to you. They're, it's worth it. I, I've never been driving down the road, see a t-ball team out there playing, stop and watched. <laughs> Not going to happen. But boy, my kids were there, I was there, right? And they, say, they don't keep score, because that doesn't matter, but every man in the audience knows what the score is. They're all keeping it up with it, right? The glory, the wisdom. The wisdom is saying is, is not only saying, it's not only when we worship God for his wisdom, it's not only saying, but it's believing that God's ways are best. 
It's obeying God because he is wiser than we are. And there's been times when I've said to God, God, I just don't get it. If I was you, I wouldn't do things this way. Anybody, am I the only one that's ever said that to the Lord? Lord, this makes absolutely no sense. There, there's no value. <laughs> there's no reason for you to do it this way. But what, what do I have to lean back on? His is the wisdom. He has the wisdom. He sees far beyond what I can see. And so in our pain, in our heartbreak, our tribulation, during great times of suffering, what do we say? Lord, even though I don't understand, I worship by saying... You have the wisdom and the thanksgiving above everybody else that I thank, above everybody else that I appreciate. Above, above, I thank God above anybody else and the honor. Lord, you deserve all of the credit. I'm grateful for my parents. Uh, I was just thinking about that this week. My dad's 90th birthday will be tomorrow. Very grateful for the dad that I have. Grateful for his health. Grateful he's still around. Very grateful for the mom that I had. Grew up in a lot of ways very, very, very blessed. But God gets the most honor, right? The honor. They, 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 they get honor, right? They, they do. They get honor. But God gets the honor, the highest credit for whatever good happens in our lives. And the power and the might. I'm glad I can worship and say, Lord, I'm protected by the all-powerful one. Then look at verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? And this is where we get the idea that the evangelists preach and these people are saved out of the great tribulation. Verse 14. And I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. And they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So one of the elders surprises John uh, with a couple of questions. Now, he knows the question. He's just pointing it out. He wants John to look at this so he can answer the questions for John. He already knows. Then he says, who are these people? And he said, these are the ones who've been saved in times of great trouble. By the way, if somebody's in a time of great trouble, it's a great time to give their life to Jesus. <laughs> You're right. You know, anytime there's, there's surgery, there's heartache, there's broken heart, there's divorce, whatever happens in your life, uh, parents treat you wrong, teachers treat you wrong, emotional difficulties and all that kind of stuff. The things that would Satan wants to tempt you to blame God for is a reason to come to God for his protection and wash your robes white in the blood of the lamb. Now, that's an interesting thing. You, our sin is black, and so the robes are, refers to us, who we are. And so we're black with sin, and we wash ourselves in the blood of Christ. And that simply means you give your life to Jesus. You become a Christian. You're saved. And so we take our black sin, wash it in red blood, it becomes white as snow. Now, that doesn't make sense in dying clothes, but that's biblical dying, right? Isn't it fantastic that every one of your sins were paid for by Jesus and all of those can be forgiven when you come to Christ? That word there, wash their robes, and the great language, that verb is called an aorist verb. And the aorist verb means what? They did it once and for all. An aorist verb is something that's done once and doesn't have to be repeated. And what's he saying? When they got saved, they're protected for all time. When they got saved, their sins were forgiven for all time. White in the blood of the Lamb. What is it? This is once for all spiritual cleansing of all of your sin. And that's why you're protected by the power of God. Even though we may not want to go through what we go through, 
Praise God he'll go through it with us. And praise God he'll get us through with pray, hopefully with praise on our lips. Then in the close of verses 15 and 17, therefore they are before the throne of God. Serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun will not strike them nor any heat. The lamb who's in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They will serve him. Activity. Activity. You got that? I, man, I get so tired. I read it this last week. Some non-Christian author uh, made a statement of, you know, I guess I'll go to heaven, but I just don't look forward to being bored there for all of eternity. It's not going to be boring. God's the most exciting person in the entire universe. And there's service. There's things to do. There's activity that God created you to do. And the thing that you most enjoy doing here, the thing that you get the most purpose out of, the thing that's most fulfilling to you here, times that feeling, times that activity by a thousand, and you still don't understand, and I still don't understand what we've been doing for Jesus in eternity. It's going to be something you were made, absolutely made um, to do. Uh, also, it says there that we're going to be in the temple. Interesting in Revelation, there's times where he talks about the temple of God, and there's times when it says there's no temple there. And so what's he talking about? He's talking about the presence of God that we will be in the presence of God forever. And watch this. What do those verses say? That there will be no unsatisfied desire. Fountains of living water. He says that there um, will be no hunger or thirst. The sun will not strike them nor any heat. Praise God, you're not going to have the heat stroke cutting grass in the summertime in heaven. Amen. For the lamb's going to shepherd them. Isn't that interesting? The lamb's going to be their shepherd. And, uh, you know, supposedly a shepherd is going to be shepherd. The lamb is supposed to be followed, but our lamb has already lived this and knows how to shepherd us through this life that he's already lived through. And so think about what are, your, what are those unsatisfied desires in our heart tonight? We all have desires for deep connections with other people, right? People who love us, who accept us for who we are, who... Um, who know how to, to just stay with you without judgment, without condemnation, who knows how to be able to give you a safe place uh, to talk your issues through. You just need those deep connections. We need freedom from anxiety, freedom from brokenheartedness, freedom from disappointments, uh, freedom from what if that happens? What do they mean by that? And are they fixing to pull out of this relationship? Do they, do they not like me anymore? Freedom um, just being tired, sin, tired of hurting, tired of being misunderstood, uh, freedom uh, from medicines, amen, doctor's visits, freedom from feeling bad. Uh, who, 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 gets, who gets freedom from all these things? The people who belong to Jesus. This, these things are kind of reiterated in Revelation 21. These, I believe these are promises for all of God's people that there's coming a day when you and I will have no unsatisfied desire because they will all be satisfied in Christ. We can go ahead and praise him for it now, amen? Because God's promises are as sure as if we already had them in our hands. Would you stand please with heads bowed and eyes closed?